This is the year of stories. I told a story about uh, Muhammad going up to the mountain to see God, going up to heaven to see God. Moses helping him along. I told a story about Rachel and her grandmother, I mean her grandfather who blessed her. And um, told a story about Annie Dillard and her burning typewriter. Last week I told a story about the Messiah. This week I'm going to tell another story about the Messiah. A two-part series, Stories About the Messiah. Last week, we might remember, there was a fugitive in the village, and he was seeking, he was seeking uh, space to be protected from the soldiers. And the, um, the soldiers came to the village. The village was very nice to him, and the, the soldiers came to the village and said, if you don't give us this kid, we're going to uh, burn the whole place down. And they went to their pastor and they were like, what should we do? What in the world? And the pastor read in his Bible, better that one person die than a whole people be lost. And so gave up that young man to the soldiers. Soldiers took him away. And the whole village had a feast, but the minister was troubled. And an angel came to him and said, Do you not know that that was the Messiah? And he said, how could I know such a thing? And the angel said, if you had just gone and spoken to him, if you had just gone and looked in his eyes, you would have known he was the Messiah. So that was last week. This week we're going to have another story about the Messiah. But first, to set it up, Remember back, if you were born at this point, 1980. It was 1980. I was 14 years old. I was living in Galesburg, Illinois, a place you never heard of. And so small. But I went to a really big church. I played a lot of basketball in that church because there was an indoor basketball court. And it was a lot of people in that church. And our youth group was really quite something. It was big, and it was fun, and it was boisterous. And If the doors of that church were open, I was likely to be there. My parents took religion very seriously. So I was always at youth group. Youth group met on Wednesday night. And one Wednesday night, I was going from one part of that big old church all the way to the other part. And I was walking along. In a stairwell, I saw this family that I knew, six kids, Catholic family, came because they wanted their kids to be part of the youth group. And, you know, these these guys went to Steamboat every year, and they always wore their Ralph Lauren, you know, stuff. This was a, this was a family that I really thought was, was all that. And I see the mom in the stairwell, and the dad, and two of the girls, and the mom is crying her eyes out. What's going on? What's this about? Husband, dad is trying to comfort her, and the two girls just look kind of lost and sad. Now, you know, it's youth group. 
Wednesday night youth group. So the rumors start flying. Oh, this must have happened. This must have happened. This must have happened. But pretty soon, you know, in these situations, the truth emerged. And what was the truth? That night. Now, I've got teenagers now. This family had teenagers. So God only knows what they were trying to do by coming over to this Baptist church. You know, they were probably trying to give their kids a fighting chance in this world, which can be pretty tough sometimes. And this Wednesday night, in some adult Bible study, one of like the old, old, old timers said in this Bible study, the Antichrist, whatever that is, right? I mean, who knows what the Antichrist is, right? But the Antichrist, which this Baptist church was all freaked out about, all worried about, all anxious about, is going to come out of, not Topeka, not Peoria, the Vatican. I mean, who knows what kind of conspiracy theory or what kind of bad theology caused this old man to say such a thing. But it broke the heart of this Catholic family. Broke their heart. Mom's crying. Now, I'm not going to preach today about bad theology because I've had it before. And I'll probably have it again, right? So I'm not busting anybody's chops. I'm just noticing that in that moment, I saw a family whose heart was broken by the church. And this old man, this old man broke their heart. But not just this old man, his bad theology broke their heart. Really bad theology. And lack of graciousness and lack of generosity broke their heart. So, I'll never forget that moment. It took me a long time to emerge from that bad theology. If you didn't have to grow up with that bad theology, man, just say a little prayer of gratitude tonight. So, <clears throat> so the story I'm going to tell today about the, about the Messiah is a story about how to be generous and gracious to others when things are going poorly. I'm going to read this story to you, okay? There was once an old stone monastery tucked away in the middle of a picturesque forest. For many years, people would make the significant detour required to seek out this monastery. The peaceful spirit of the place was healing for the soul. In recent years, however, fewer and fewer people were making their way to the monasteries. The monks had grown jealous and petty. The monks had grown jealous and petty in their relationships with one another, and animosity was felt by those who visited. The abbot of the monastery was distressed by what was happening and poured out his heart to his good friend Jeremiah, the wise old rabbi who lived on the other side of the village. Having heard the abbot's tale of woe, he asked if he could offer a suggestion. Anything, the abbot said, anything you can offer, please. Jeremiah said he had received a vision 
an important vision. And the vision was this. The Messiah was among the ranks of the monks. The abbot, the abbot was like flabbergasted. One among his own was the Messiah? Who could it be? He knew it wasn't himself. But who? So he raced back to the monastery and shared the ex exciting news with the fellow monks. The monks grew silent as they looked into each other's faces. Was this the Messiah? From that day on, the mood in the monastery changed. Joseph and Ivan started talking again, neither wanting to be guilty of slighting the Messiah. I mean, you can understand this, right? The ones who had been fighting, Pierre and Nebu, left behind their frosty anger and sought each other's forgiveness. The monks began serving each other, looking for opportunities to assist, seeking healing and forgiveness where offense had been given. As one traveler then another found their way to the monastery, word soon spread about the spirit of the place. People once again took the journey to the monastery and found themselves renewed and transformed, all because those monks knew the Messiah was among them. When you encounter the other as the Messiah, your whole posture changes. Your whole trajectory changes. So as I went on my journey to healing, reconciliation, integration of all those experiences, good and bad, that I had growing up and in life, you know, I meandered. I wondered. And, um, and I tried this and I tried that. And eventually, I got to a place where I could make sense of these experiences. And I came to realize that traditional churches, non-traditional churches, new age churches, old school churches, middle of the road churches, all had their issues. And that my work was to find my spiritual friends and to find some kind of meaning in the world. Coming out of evangelicalism was, was weird. It was odd. It was strange. Um, and it was an important journey for me to take. One person in the 21st century who's been helping folks make that journey is named Rachel Held Evans. And um, she wrote some books like The Year of Living Biblically where she tried to do all the things the Bible says that you're supposed to do. So she didn't cut her hair. <laughs> when her menstrual cycle came along, she camped out in the front yard. <laughs> you know, all these things, right? She did it for a whole year and she wrote about it. And, um, and she was a remarkable, uh, remarkable young writer. And she died this weekend. She died this weekend. She had a UTI in the flu. And she had an allergic reaction to antibiotics which caused her to seize, and um, they, they couldn't save her life. And a lot of my friends are really struggling. A, a transgender Unitarian Universalist male pastor weeping 
an African-American woman Baptist pastor weeping, uh, the head of the Southern Baptist Ethics something or other, weeping. And all these different people. I told my wife, who's a pastor, and she just broke down. Um, it's just very, very sad. Rachel, Rachel, the, the reason people love her is she says stuff like, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs. Anyone? Anyone? Just me? Just me? Okay. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they were rich or powerful or good, but because they're hungry and they said yes. And there's always room for more. (laughs) And she says stuff like, I'm sick of waging war. I'm ready to wash feet. So it took me a minute to come to a place of integrating all this. My, my, one of my seminary professors told me that it was like, when he tried to figure out my theology, it was like playing Twister. I was like, yeah, but it's a fun game of Twister, so there you go. Today in the Christian tradition, the Bible story that many churches are going to tell is about a post resurrection appearance of Jesus. It's in the last part of the book of John. The disciples have fished all night. They've caught nothing. And Jesus shows up and they catch a bunch of fish. And then Jesus invites them to breakfast on the beach. And it's like a, it's like one of those parts of the Bible that was stuck in later, you know? It's a, um, the original ending of the book of John was was 20, but this one was added later. And um, if John was written, you know, around the year 100, this came in like 120 or so, maybe 110, something like that. So what's going on? Jesus appears to them at this lake. And what is going on is the disciples are trying to figure out how Love wins. Between 66 and 136, Rome and the Jewish people are fighting, fighting, fighting. Temples destroyed. Jerusalem is a wasteland. Christianity wasn't much more than just another Jewish sect at that point. And the Romans didn't care. Uh, You know, they were Jews, they were going to be persecuted regardless of their theology, and it was just tough. It was psychologically damaging for the Jews and for this emerging Christian movement within Judaism. See, those that had become Christians thought Jesus was going to return quickly. And this didn't happen. They thought maybe within 30 years, within a generation, there would be a coming back. But... Not only did he fail to return and establish this kingdom, but things got really bad under the Romans. So these Christians are fighting with their Jewish cousins. They're fighting with the Romans. Everything is just despair. And all they're longing for is resurrection in the face of death. So unexpected death and loss 
is the context for this chapter at the end of John. There's no glow of resurrection. There's no kingdom coming back in glory. Rather, there's a story about fishermen. The disciples don't know what to do with themselves. They don't even know if Jesus is alive or dead. Sometimes he appears, sometimes he doesn't. It's just confusing. He comes and goes. And so they go back to their old lives, what they know. They know how to fish. They go and fish. But all of a sudden, they're not so good at it anymore. They can't catch any fish. They're cold. They got empty nets. It's dark. They're stripped down to nakedness. It is a picture of despair. And what happens next? Jesus shows up on the beach at dawn. At first, they don't recognize him, but they wind up listening to him and catching a big haul of fish after he tells them to lower their nets. And a couple of them begin to realize it's Jesus. The, the, the fish are important here. I think it even numbers, the, the, like, like they caught 153 big fish. Like 153, not 152, 153. Now, big fish were reserved for the rich and the wealthy and the powerful. They caught many large fish. Jesus reminds them in this story written much, much later that the story of life is a story of abundance and not scarcity and provision and not fear. Now you would think, well, these guys are probably struggling They're probably going to go to the market and sell these fish. But what does Jesus say to them? Anybody remember their John 21? No. Um, He says, hey, uh, let's have breakfast. Let's have breakfast. And they have breakfast. They are in the midst of despair, disorientation, confusion. And what does he do? He invites them to a feast. They eat the big fish, the ones normally eaten by the elite, by the Herods and the Pilots and the Caesars. They're poor and in despair, but Jesus feeds them as if they're the most precious things in the world. This is a Thanksgiving feast. If it were Caesar... Caesar would demand loyalty based on fear and violence and death. If Caesar invites you to that dinner, you owe him everything. An infinite debt of gratitude that could be repaid only by giving your whole life to the empire. But that's not what happens with this Jesus. He feeds his friend And what does he say? Instead of, will you obey me? Will you do this for me? Will you do that for me? The only thing he asks is, do you love me? Peter, who really screwed up not too long ago, right? He he dropped the ball. Do you love me? Of course I love you. You know I love you. Do you cherish me? Of course. With Caesar... And the empire, 
It's a feast of fear. With Jesus, it's a feast of love and abundance. A Thanksgiving feast. A banquet of love. They dine as if they are kings. Yet there is no threat or fear in this kingdom. They eat love. They cherish and are cherished. And out of that love, they see what the kingdom of God looks like. They set the Thanksgiving table, the feast of love. The empire seems to have won. Death seems to have won. But they have a simple breakfast at the edge of a lake, freed from the violence, freed from the fear, and they bask in each other's company. All the sadness, all the disorientation was vanished in that moment, replaced with a simple expression of love. Sit, eat, give thanksgiving, bless the world, love and cherish one another. Feed each other when you can. You are loved. You are cherished. You're invited to the feast. God bless you, friends.